Everybody hear me in the back? Yes? No? This morning we're going to continue looking at the book of Acts as we preach our way verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter this morning. Chapter 24. And to help focus our, our hearts on what the Lord would have us to hear, I, I want to ask a question. Where is your hope? I've had a number of opportunities to speak to younger people, teenagers, and, and I, I sort of play a game with them. I ask this question uh, and keep repeating it over and over again. I ask them about life. So what's next? I graduate high school, go to college. What's next? Get a good job. What's next? Get married. Then what? Have kids. Get a big house. What's next? And at some point, these dreams, these hopes, and they, they come to an end. And, and the sad reality in this fallen world is what you realize as you hit these what next steps is you realize, well, what happens when the car breaks down? What happens when the wife leaves? The house depreciates. What happens when death comes? What happens when that diagnosis comes? That 2 o'clock in the morning phone call about your kid Where's your hope? For Christian, our hope should begin where everybody else has stopped. Paul, who's on trial here in 24, said, if in Christ we have hope in this life alone, we of all people most to be pitied. So where's your hope? Let's pray that God's Word redirects our hope today. Pray with you. Father, we come in the name of the risen Savior. And I ask, Lord, that you would grant us hope in Christ alone. That you would grant us hope in the resurrection. That you would grant us hope in your promise of eternal life in Christ. That you would grant us hope in the inheritance that is to come, that is kept for us in heaven. Father, your word says if we ask, you'll give your spirit. I need your spirit. Everybody in this room needs your spirit. We're asking, Lord, that you would do a mighty thing in our hearts today. Through the preaching of your word and the hearing of it, I pray you would transform our hope and remove our eyes from looking at worthless things and set our sights on things above where Christ is, where our life truly is. Make it so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Acts 24. Paul is in chains. How did he get here? And what's next for him? And where is his hope? Well, on his way back from, from Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, the Holy Spirit began to really make clear to him that affliction and imprisonment awaited him. And here he is. It happened real quick once he got there. Seven days in, and that prophecy begins to come true. But I don't think he realized, maybe he doesn't, maybe he does. I'm not sure he fully realized yet that this is actually what God, what Jesus had already told him. When he met him on the road to Damascus, in that conversion experience, he says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And we're seeing that happen right here. This is unfolding uh, right here. This is what's next for Paul. He gets to Jerusalem. Within seven days, he's attacked and mobbed. He's rescued by the Roman Tribune. And he gets a chance to sort of make a defense to the mob. And that's his first of five that we know of public defenses. And they sort of escalate right in line with what Jesus told him he would have to do. And here we are looking at the third one. The third one before the Roman governor, Felix. So that's what we have in Acts chapter 2. Now, we're going we're to look at this in two different sections. We're going to first see the case that they lay out against Paul. Verses 1 through 9. And then we're going to see Paul make his defense. 10 through 21. And so we're going to read it. We're going to break it up just like that. So read along with me from God's Word. Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. The, the case against Paul. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman for Tullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tullius began to accuse him, saying to Felix, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so what we have here, it's just five days, you see in the text, five days. Since Paul was seized in Jerusalem, 12 days in total since he came to Jerusalem. Now the, some of the Jewish leaders, 
the high priest, some of the elders, have come down from Jerusalem sort of pursuing him to this trial. But now the Jewish leaders are knee-deep in the Roman legal system. This is not their courtroom anymore. Paul has miraculously escaped their jurisdiction. And now they've got to convince this Roman governor to do away with this man or give him back to us, hand him back over to us. So they need a little help and they've got a, they've got a hired gun here. It says a, a spokesman. That's where we get our word rhetoric from. This guy is skilled in language, speaking. He's an orator. He's an advocate. He's, a, he's basically a lawyer. And his name tells us he's Roman. So they got a Roman lawyer. A smooth-talking lawyer. So this time they're not pursuing Paul with sticks and stones, but with smooth talk and flattery in the legal system. Listen to the smooth talk in his address. He addresses Felix, this uh, spokesman, says, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, and on and on and on. The, about the only thing that's true here is when he says, I beg you. Felix was not most excellent. And they hated Rome, and they hated the Romans, and they hated Felix. He was cruel, he was a tyrant, he was licentious. Look at him. <laughs> Verse 26 says, it shows us that he was crooked. He's an extortioner, seeking a bribe. Dispensing justice to the highest bidder. This is who this was. Most excellent Felix. Two years later, you can see verse 27. He gets recalled to Rome and replaced by Festus. Paul's going to have to give a defense to him. But he's recalled. Why? Because of his atrocities to the Jews. In fact, he, he narrowly escapes execution himself by, because of his brother. His brother had... Let's go to end with Nero. Most excellent Felix. These are just lies. It's just flattery. False flattery. Proverbs says a lying tongue hates its victims. And a flattering mouth works ruin. And this guy's hitting on both. You see what's going on, right? He, he's, he's sort of sweet talking the judge, the governor with flattery as he now turns to, to slander Paul. The lesson to be learned here. Beware of flattery. Beware of false flattery especially. Sadly, flattery sometimes is more effective than truth and that's what they're going after here. But don't be persuaded by it. Don't be persuaded by flattery or eloquence or repetition. You got a lot of that going on today. Just because you say things sweet enough or smooth enough or often enough doesn't make it true. Doesn't make it true. And so 
Tertullus begins with this personal attack on Paul in verse 5. He says, we found this man to be a plague. Don't, surprise, don't be surprised when this happens to you. A personal attack to discredit you, to discredit your message. Church leaders, don't be surprised. Satan's been doing this since the beginning. Discredit the man, discredit the message. We have found this man to be a plague, a pestilence, a, a plague on society, a cancer. This is how the world sees us, by the way. Don't, 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 be, don't be fooled by this Christian nation. This is the way the world really sees us. We're a plague. And so this guy makes his, his first accusation against Paul. He says, we found this man to be a plague. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. They're accusing Paul of sedition. One who stirs up riots. One who incites people to rebellion. It's not just this little outpost in Jerusalem. They accuse him of stirring up rebellion throughout the world. Felix, this man is dangerous. This man is a threat to the Roman government. And by the way, this is death penalty language. It's sedition, rebellion, straight to a Roman cross. Do not pass God. Second accusation, he says that this guy is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's not just a rebel. He's the ringleader. He's the chief leader of this dangerous group. Catch that. This is, this is the heart of the matter. These guys are aiming beyond Paul. This Paul is a he, he's a plague on Rome. He stirs up rebellion and revolt against Rome. He's a ringleader of this group, this sect called the Nazarenes. This group is a plague. This movement is an insurrection. The followers of this man from Nazareth are dangerous. He's the ringleader. There will be no peace in your province, Felix. As long as this pestilence is allowed to continue. You see what he's, see what's happening? The third accusation, it says he tried to profane the temple. This goes back to chapter 21. When the mob accused him of, he says he even brought a Greek, Greeks into the temple and defiled this place. But that wasn't true. They just saw him with some of the guys from Asia, from Ephesus. And they just assumed that he brought him into the temple. He didn't. But this is a serious charge. Don't overlook this either. You see, the Romans allowed their, the, 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 the nations they captured to continue their religious practice. This is an easy way to keep peace in a sprawling empire. And so they allowed the Jews to execute people who profaned their temple. And so this is a... This, this is another death penalty charge here. But this is actually a ploy to get Felix to let Paul go into their custody. Why? 
so they could kill him legally. If you have a King James Version or NASB Version, you'll see what I'm talking about here in the text in verse 7. If you've got an ESV, there isn't a verse 7. There's no verse 7. You've probably got a footnote that, that tells you why, because some of the older manuscripts don't have this verse. But I don't know whether it's in the original or not, but I'll tell you what, what it says is in their hearts. It says he tried to profane the temple. We seized him. And we would have judged him. But the chief captain came and took him with great violence out of our hands. And that's what they really want. Is to get him back so that they can judge him according to their law. Oh, how they want to do that. Just like they did the man from Nazareth. They want to kill him. And so he's got these three accusations. He makes this personal attack. He's got this sedition, uh, stirring up riots. He's the ringleader of this dangerous sect. He profaned our temple. This man's a plague. He's an enemy of Rome. He's an enemy of Judea, where you reign. Most excellent Felix. Look, by, by examining yourself, verse 8, by examining yourself, you, you're going to be able to find out what we're saying is true. I, I think he's being really sly here again. It's almost like he's saying, look, it's obvious this man is an enemy from Rome. Just talk to him for a few minutes. You'll see. You'll figure it out. And honestly, I think they were depending upon Paul's consistency to hang himself with his own words. Because in 2 Corinthians, real simply lays out what his message and his ministry is all about. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Not Caesar. That's bad. If that ever comes out of his mouth, it's over. Just talk to him yourself. What does he say? What does he say? He says, uh, examining him yourself, you will see. You will quickly find out from him everything of which we accuse him. And then the Jews join in. says they joined in the charge, verse 9. They affirmed that these things were true. This little silent nod of corroboration. You can kind of hear the echoes from five days earlier when they said, away with him. Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. Can you imagine that? You ever had that sort of opposition? Can you imagine being hated that much by that many people? Can you imagine having everybody and everything against you? He's here by himself. Paul's a dual citizen. He's, he's a Roman Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And he's a Hebrew. He's a Jew. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He's got dual citizenship, but I bet you he's never felt more like a sojourner than right now. He's a man without a country. Where's your hope now, Paul? 
few years from now, when he's imprisoned in Rome, he's going to pin these words to the Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into a body like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. And it's that hope with everybody against Him in which Paul now makes his defense. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a, a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or torment. But some of the Jews from Asia... They ought to be here before you and make any accusation they should have against me. Or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing. But I cried out to them while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am now on trial before you. So we see Paul, without a smooth-talking advocate, he's only got two things on his side, the truth and Jesus. He's been quiet up to now. He's been very respectful for, for these proceedings because he believes, as he wrote to the Romans just recently, all authority comes from God. And now he addresses the court, not with lies or flattery, but with respectful truth. I know you've been a judge for many years. That's true. And he then just refutes these two charges. He says, you can verify it's not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. He said, when did I have time to organize this worldwide rebellion? And it's only been 12 days since I came to Jerusalem. I've been in chains for five. They did not find me stirring up crowds. As a matter of fact, those seven days, I was in the middle of purification. I didn't even preach. They can't prove these charges. I did not profane the temple. I was being purified myself. I'm not an enemy of Rome. I'm not an enemy of Jerusalem. 
I'm not an enemy of our religion. If anything, it's just the opposite. It's my devotion to our nation. It's my devotion to our religion that I even came back to Jerusalem. He says, I came to bring alms to my nation. I came to present offerings. I didn't profane the temple. They found me purified in the temple. It's not me stirring up trouble, verse 19. It's those guys from Asia. They're the real problem. They ought to be here. Quote, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation. And so he refutes those two accusations and then he makes a concession. He actually makes a confession of faith. And as he does, he talks about the agreement. The agreement, not disagreement, but the agreement that he has with these men that are accusing. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you. That according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. He says, I, I confess. I'm part of the sect they're talking about. I do follow the teachings of this man from Nazareth. I am part of this religious movement they call The Way, capital W. I don't know if your Bible capitalizes it. I love that about the ESV. It capitalizes the word way here. What an awesome term for Christianity. The Way. I'm a follower of The Way. Felix knows what he's talking about. Look, verse 22, the very next verse we're going to talk about next week. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Felix knows what time it is. Felix knows what's going on here. He, he understands to some degree this, this battle between Christianity and Judaism. In, in verse 24, you see his wife is Jewish. Next week we're going to see he's got a little interest in this Christianity thing. So Paul is confessing faith in Jesus Christ here. He says he worships God according to the way which they call a sect. But he wants to make clear that this sect is not some dangerous movement. In fact, technically speaking, it's not that much different than what these guys believe. Notice that that's what he's saying here. We've got the same God. I worship the God of our fathers. We've got the same scriptures. It says, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Same scrolls. Me and these guys, same. Same hope. Look, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. That there will be a resurrection. Paul asserts Total innocence, even agreement with them. And he does it with a, with a uh, what do you think, clear conscience. Verse 16. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And I do not have time to talk about that. That's why it's grayed out of my paper. Because I knew I wouldn't have time to talk about that. But go look it up. Paul makes a big deal out of the conscience. 20 times in the New Testament. 
Why do you think that is? Every man's got a conscience. And that conscience sometimes is seared. But we who have the Holy Spirit need to listen to that conscience. Because it's powerful. Is your conscience clear before God today? Is it clear before man, before the people in this congregation right now? Paul says, my conscience is clear. And so with clear conscience, he's brought this courtroom down to this one moment. I did not stir up, nor will I ever stir up riots. They know it. They can't prove it. I did not, nor would I profane the temple. They know it. They can't prove it. This is not a legal matter. This is a religious matter. And we're part of the same religion, sort of. We have the same God. We have the same Scriptures. We have the same hope. But here's the real problem. Here's the real issue. Verse 21. This one thing. This one thing is the same one thing as last time. And the time before. And the time before. And the time to come. And the one after that. It always comes down to this one thing. It is with respect to the resurrection that I am on trial here today. This, this whole dispute comes down to this one thing, the, the resurrection. Paul's just quoting what he said last time. This is Paul reading into evidence the testimony from his last trial. Nothing's changed. The problem is the same because the opinions are the same. They're just, just the same one thing, the resurrection. A couple of years later, a couple of chapters later in verse 26, in the same town, in the same court in front of King Agrippa, Paul is going to say the same one thing. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our fathers. For this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is the one thing they agreed on. God raises the dead. That's what Paul says right here. Look at verse 14. He says, I have a hope in God which these men themselves accept. There will be a resurrection. The one thing they agreed upon, by the way, is a fact. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. It is appointed once for man to die, then the judgment. Please hear this. Thus saith the Lord. It is appointed for you to die. Then judgment. There is a judgment soon. And it happens when you die. Religions all over this world, all across history, affirm this. There is a penalty for sin. 
There is judgment from God. There, quote, verse 15, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so which are you? Just or unjust? Innocent or guilty? Righteous or unrighteous? Good or evil in God's sight? Jesus says, there's an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Are you ready for that? Are you good enough for that? John says, I saw the dead, great and small. Everybody. Standing before the throne. And books were open. And the dead were judged by what was in the books. You ready for the books to be open? Are you ready for the secret thoughts of your heart to be exposed to all? Paul says, when this happens, and it will, every mouth will be stopped. And the whole world will be held accountable to God for what they've done. Are you ready for that? And see, I dare say that everybody, nearly everybody in this courtroom, believe this. Even Felix, a couple days from now, in verse 25, he's going to tremble over the, quote, coming judgment. This one thing is true. Whether you believe it or not, it's still true. You will stand before God. And so what's the problem here? So far, I've seen a problem. If they all agree, why is Paul on trial? Listen. The question is not if you will stand before God. The question is how. Let me repeat that. The question is not if you will stand before God, because you will. The question is how. How in the world will you stand before God? This is the big question in the book of Job. How can a man be right before God? The psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, and he does, who could stand? Are you good enough for heaven? See, this is the one problem which has led to the one thing they disputed. The Jews thought they were good enough to stand before God in Judgment Day. Look at the text. It says, verse 15, it says, Having a hope in God which these men themselves accept. They had a hope in God and the hope in God was this, this resurrection of the just and the unjust. How could that be hopeful for them? They had no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul totally understood their mind. He totally understood what they were thinking. You know why? Because he used to think the same way. Such were some of you. He 
he lays this out in Philippians 3. He talks about, man, if you, if you think you've got reason for confidence in the flesh, how about me? Circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. As to the law, blameless. Are you blameless? Paul thought he was blameless. These Jews think they're blameless and they're hoping is in the resurrection of the just. Because they thought they were just. Somebody in here today thinks they're just. Somebody in here right now thinks they're not that bad of a person. Somebody in here right now thinks they're good enough to go to heaven. And I'm going to tell you something. If you think that, apart from Jesus Christ, you are lost. You are lost. Man, you are lost. And man, there is no greater proof of the depravity of man than to actually think that you can stand before the perfect, infinite, holy, righteous God. It's so unbelievably ridiculous. And we all think that. It's unbelievable. We are ignorant of the righteousness of God. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of these guys right here, these scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the requirement for heaven. Well, nobody's perfect. I know. That's the problem. This is the one thing they had wrong. They believe that the righteousness you need to stand before God when the resurrection comes, comes from you. Paul believed, this is the one thing right here. Paul believed that the righteousness you need to stand before God in the resurrection comes from Messiah. Not from you. From Christ. Alone. See, Paul believed that the Messiah would be more than a king, but also a savior. That he would bear the sins of his people in his body and suffer and die in their place. He believed that Messiah would be raised from the dead and establish perfect righteousness for his people. And Jesus did that. All of them. And more. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the resurrected son of David. Jesus is the Christ. And this is the one thing. This is the one thing that is beautiful. Jesus. Paul anguished over this. In Romans 10 he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ. 
is the end of the law for righteousness for all who believe. Hear this. Christ is your righteousness or you have none. Please don't be like the Jews who are cut off from God. Please don't be ignorant of the righteousness of God. Don't rely upon your own zeal. Don't rely upon your own righteousness. Please submit to God's righteousness. Jesus. That's God's righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What a great summary of the Bible. The very righteousness of God just through faith in this man from Nazareth. It's the one thing they hated, the one thing that they disputed. They have the same scriptures. Muslims have the same scriptures. Mormons have the same scriptures. Jehovah Witnesses have the same scriptures. But we differ on this one thing. Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Not through works, not through effort, not through religious rituals, not through living a decent life, a little better than your neighbor. Jesus. One thing. This is the one thing they hated. Man. Man, this is the reason they're even here. The, this man, the high priest. And the elders have come 70 miles to pursue this man. And this is, what, this is Paul's life. Since the day he, they laid hand on him and sent him out. This has been his life. Pursued. Persecuted. Gospel being polluted by the guys right behind him. These Judaizers. It, it, it's, it's horrific. You know, Paul prayed about this thorn in his side. Being buffeted by Satan. And I don't know what the thorn is anybody, any more than anybody else. But I'm going to tell you, this was a thorn. Man. His first missionary journeys in Galatia and the, the Jews stirred up persecution in Antioch and Iconium. And then he goes down to Lystra. They follow him down there and stone him. His second missionary journey, the, the Jews mob him in Thessalonica and he flees. But that wasn't good enough. They come down to Berea and persecute him and attack him there. And then they make a, a coordinated attack on him in Corinth. The third missionary journey, he's all the way out there in Greece again, and they make a plot to kill him. He gets back to Jerusalem, and who is it? The Jews come down from Asia. They start this mob that get him into this place. And, and everywhere he went, he plants a church, he goes on, and come, they come behind him, they pollute the gospel. He writes to Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? They're relentless. They fall into the ends of the earth. Why? What drives somebody to do that? Who's got time for that? But this, it, I mean, you get paid to be a Paul hater? I mean, who? Why? What makes such hatred? It hasn't changed, by the way. And, and by, Paul knew this hatred. A couple chapters there, chapter 8, he had the same hatred. He was a chief of sinners. 
here in this hatred and persecution of the church. He understood it. We should not expect any difference. Don't be surprised if you're hated in your own home. Don't be surprised at the lengths people go to slander your name. Don't be surprised at the lies that people will tell. Don't be surprised if they even use the authorities to try to shut you down or shut you up. And that's become increasingly easier to do. Jesus said, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his own children. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And we read through this and we just read through this, man. Because we've never seen anything like this. This is the only place in history that we didn't see this. Everywhere else ever, all the time, since Jesus was raised from the dead, this is what's happened. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what does Paul do? Keeps preaching Christ. It's the one thing he did. He's doing it right here in the book of Acts. You know, he, he starts this, uh, it is with respect to the resurrection that I'm on trial here today. And if Felix hadn't stopped him, which he does in verse 22, he stopped him. What do you think would have started coming out next? Gospel. He, he would can you imagine me preaching with chains? He would have been preaching with chains on is the Christ. That's what he would have done right here in front of them. Because you see, he does it every time. Paul, Paul was as relentless about preaching the gospel as his enemies were in trying to kill it. The one thing the Jews hated to hear is the one thing Paul loved to preach. Jesus is the Christ. Paul's a broken record. He's a broken record. You can see a good, the best glimpse of that, I think, is in chapter 17. When he first comes to Thessalonica, he says, uh, the Bible says that Paul went into the synagogues, as was his custom. And he, on three Sabbath days, he, he reasoned with them from their scriptures. Examining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Over and over, as was his custom, this one thing, over and over. Man, just look at the map. Man, no cars, no planes, trains, automobiles. Over 1,800 miles to Jerusalem. Town after town. Not to Jerusalem, to Corinth. From Jerusalem. Or by foot. Or by ship. And I use that term loosely. Town after town. Region after region. This is what he preached. He told the Corinthians, when he finally got there, I decided to do nothing among you Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then that same letter, chapter 15, he spent the whole chapter unfolding for us the glories of our resurrection. 
He says, no, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached. That Christ died according to the Scriptures. And He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He, he appeared to Peter and, and, and 500 brothers and, and James and all the apostles and at least of all me. And then He declares this fact. In fact, Jesus has been raised. That's what He preached. And all who in Christ will be made alive. I love this part of it. Towards the end, he says, We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. What a glorious thought. In the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable, immortal. Death, where is your sting? Swallowed up. Paul. Paul didn't endure this out of his own strength. He endured this because he understood he was immortal. I want you to hear this. Christianity is not about morality. It's about immortality. That's, a, that's totally different than what most people think. Christianity is not about morality. It's about immortality. We follow a man from Nazareth who's raised from the dead. That's what we believe. This is what Paul believed. This is what he preached. He preached it because he believed it. It's the one thing he knew. He was convinced. He was absolutely convinced. He knew for certain. This man who's on trial here, he had met the risen Christ. This man who's on trial here had been somehow transported to the third heaven. He saw Christ in every bit of His heavenly glory and He can't even tell us about it. Paul knew the one thing he preached is the one thing he knew that he would be raised with Christ. How else do you explain his life? How else do you walk a thousand miles and get beat up in every town? How else do you endure the imprisonments, the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the cold, sleepless nights on the side of the road in the wilderness? How else do you die every day? He said. How else do you stand on trial before murderous men? How do you stand on trial before governors and kings who could care less? This is how you believe what you preach. And you preach what you believe. Paul knew it. He lived it. I don't have time to look at this either, but my favorite chapter in the Bible, and you'll hear it if you ever meet, talk with me, and you're going to hear it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul talks about being persecuted and struck down, but not forgotten, and all of these things always carrying in his body the death, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might be made known to everybody. He says, we believe, therefore we speak. Circle this word. Knowing that we raised with Jesus. This is confidence he had in the resurrection. It's all he preached. It wasn't his mental toughness that kept him going. It was his confidence in it immortality. He would be raised with Christ. He knew this one thing. 
Do you believe this? I think it was Dustin a couple weeks ago. He said, man, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. Has it changed everything? To the degree that it's changed everything, that's the degree you believe it. Are you stuck to the dust of the world? Or do you seek the things of God? you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness? A, a, a genuine belief in this radical doctrine creates a radical faith. Some guy's got a book by that title, I think. The way we believe transforms the way we live. And the way we live reflects the way we believe. One difference between the Jews' religion and Paul's religion was this one thing, the risen Christ and our hope in Him. It reminds me of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus seeking eternal life and Jesus said, one thing you lack. Do you lack this one thing? This one thing is the only way. Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, this way is death. Do you lack this one thing? This one thing, look at look in this Verse 14. This little three-letter word, way. W-A-Y. Capital. W-A-Y. One of the earliest descriptions of Christianity. And if you understand the gospel, you know why it's called the way. And you also know why the world hates the way. Because there's only one way. Remember all the people got the same scriptures? It's the one thing they don't believe. It's one thing. It's the one, there's one way. There's only one way to put away your sin. There's only one way to be right with God when you're raised from the dead. There's only one way to escape that eternal judgment. There's only one way to everlasting life. That one and only way is to pledge allegiance to the one who Paul met on the way to Damascus. Risen. Christ. Come to Jesus now. Now. And stay. And abide in the one who has the words of eternal life. Amen. To the one who said this. I am the light. I am the truth. And I'm the light. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Do you know that one risen Savior from heaven and Nazareth? Messiah. This Jesus, I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Trust in Him.
Father, in love, you sent your Son to grab the sins of your people. Crucified and raised and seated at the right hand, pouring out your Spirit, caused us to believe this truth. We're Americans 2,000 years away from these scrolls, but we believe. We thank you for that gift of faith. I pray, Lord, by your spirit, by your preaching of your word, you would grant faith here today to those who don't believe so they might join the way and might have life. We praise your holy name for the grace in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.